Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast, uh, live edition. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And today we have an incredible guest who has spent over 30 years passionately trying to figure out how do we create schools and school systems that empower students, empower staff, and empower parents. Uh, Dr. Candace Singh, you know, is currently, uh, she's the superintendent of Fallbrook Union Elementary School District out in California, near San Diego, California. Uh, she's been in her position, I think, going on her 11th year now, which is about four times the average <laughs> of a tenure of superintendents. And so she's clearly doing something right uh, to, to, to be there. Uh, on top of that, uh, she's a speaker, she's a coach, um, and she has a really unique position uh, helping tap aspiring uh, women leaders to hopefully become school leaders through the AASA. And so we're honored to have her here today, and we have a lot of interesting things to talk about. So Candice, thank you for being here. Oh gosh, Dustin, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, as I'm sure you know, our first question that we ask every guest does not change. And so my question for you is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Hmm. Well, first, I'm a mom and a wife uh, in my big jobs outside of my job, but I'm also a school superintendent. Uh, I am really passionate about the work that I do in public education. I've been doing it a long time. Um, I started out as an instructional aide uh, and worked my way up to be a teacher, a principal, a district office leader, and now a superintendent going into my 11th year on the job. Um, I'm really passionate about the opportunities that I have now to create the conditions in which people can do their best work. So, you know, knowing that it, I have a teacher's heart uh, and still will always be a teacher, I've been teaching adults also for many years. Uh, I'm so proud to create an organization, a system, a school district, and a culture that supports classroom teachers and principals to do the work that needs to be done for the kids. Yeah, well, so my my question, I want to dive into kind of how you do that. But my first question is, when did you know you wanted to be an educator and what, uh, you know, set that off for you in this mm -hmm. path? Yeah, you know, Justin, when I was um, in probably in elementary school is when I first thought I would want to be a teacher. And it was because of the, a very particular teacher that I had at the time. I had had a lot of difficulties and challenges and headwinds as a kid. Uh, and it really was teachers who made the difference for me, allowed me to see that I could be anything I wanted to be. I'm the first college graduate in my family, and, um, and I'm really proud of that. Uh, but it was a teacher who, you know, really saw something in me and um, allowed me to grow and uh, focus on things I was really passionate about and interested in. Uh, and so it was really through, you know, through my school years that I actually was focused on being a teacher. And then when I had the opportunity to go to community college and then the local state, San Diego State, go Aztecs, um, <laughs> I had the first, I had the opportunity to be the first family, first member of my family to go to college. And so that was um, a really special thing to go on to become a teacher and which was a lifelong goal. And it's why I still have a teacher's heart today. That's awesome. I, I think uh, one of, one of my roles with Franklin Covey was uh, originally as a client partner, which meant I traveled uh, an area to talk to superintendents and principals about the idea of doing this leadership work in their schools. And I remember as we explored that, one of the questions I've asked, you know, I think I thousands of educators now is uh, who inspired you as, to, as an educator and why, you know, as you think about when you were a student, 
who in that building inspired you and why? And what we found is, you know, I'd say probably 80 to 90% of people have a story like yours that say, I chose this because someone believed in me uh, and mm -hmm. I can tell you who that is. But there was also a 10 to 20% of folks who said, I chose to become an educator because someone didn't believe in me. And so one of my questions, that's a challenge that I think every school leader or district leader has is how do we create a district of folks and schools of folks where every educator in the building is someone who's believing in kids, not diminishing kids? What are, what are some uh, systems you put in place to make sure that your staff and your schools are acting as the teachers, that educators that inspired you to become an educator? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's what a great question. There's lots of layers to that, Dustin. I would start by saying that um, I, I really believe that people, almost every educator, when, you, when they think back to the reason they started, they can be really clear about why they're doing what they're doing. When they, when they first got that teaching credential, when they first thought, I want to be a teacher, for most people, um, sometimes I think folks lose track of the why they're doing what they're doing. And that happens for lots of reasons. One of the ways that I think that we inspire the adults in our district is we really um, honor them first as the adults who work here. Um, we work with um, all of the folks in our system, both certificated and classified, to support them in their professional and their personal growth. And when people are better personally in their personal lives and in their professional lives, when they're growing and improving, uh, they can bring their better self to work and then in turn be there for our kids. So I think when people feel supported and cared about and when they are given the resources that they need to do their jobs well, um, we see high levels, higher levels of engagement uh, and then that connection to the kids. Uh, and so we do a lot of that work around teaching. Um, we provide uh, training in the seven habits of highly effective people for all of our employees in our school district. We know that when people are at their personal best, they do a better job in the classroom or they do a better job in our working in our facilities or in our maintenance and operations department. Um, people who are more effective personally do a better job in the workplace. Uh, that then connects to the kids. I think we uh, have a we work hard to have a strengths-based culture in the way that we look at children as well. We know that children um, have so many beautiful, unique gifts and talents that they bring to the classroom, and we want our the adults who work with the kids, our teachers and our support staff, to see those unique gifts, strengths, and talents of every child so that we can capitalize on those. So I think that as a foundation that we really look to enhance the inherent strengths and abilities of adults and kids kind of creates the environment where um, everyone's um, working hard and rowing in the same direction and wanting to do a great job for the kids that come to our schools. So I think that's amazing. I, I think you know, I, I would hope all educators have that, that viewpoint. I do know we were talking earlier uh, before we started the interview about both of our backgrounds in the school turnaround space. And I know through a number of my friends who've been in that space with me is that sometimes it feels like the pressure to just get results yeah. trumps the uh, ability to like really take care of your people. 
And so what's the encouragement you have to folks? Because, you know, they, they say, look, I have to get my reading scores up three levels or two levels this year or else I'm out of a job. They're out of a job. We're all going back to it. How, how do you help folks have the courage to to live out what you say is the most important thing, which is take care of your people first? Yeah, um, I think it's obviously the onus is on the leader, right? The principal or whoever are the people who is working directly up close yep. to the kinds of, you know, that situation that you're describing. Um, I think if we don't begin with the understanding that relationships are the engine of improvement, they always have been people that feel connected and cared about uh, and, and are then in a place to be locked in arm, arm in arm with everyone else to do the great work. So clarity about what our outcomes need to be, um, confronting maybe some of the things that are really hard to look at, but then working with people to give them um, kind of the forward looking idea about the difference we can make. You know, that kind of inspiration I think is important uh, because we really can uh, make a difference in places where kids have been traditionally underserved. Uh, but I just always go back to, it starts with connection. It's like kids, you know, you've heard it said probably many times that kids don't work hard for teachers they don't like. Yep. And um, I think that it's true when we look at our, the adults who are in this work um, that they feel connected and they feel cared about that you're a we care about you as a person and your well-being while we hold high expectations for what we need to do we also have high support and high care for people um, and that that approach and that relational um, emphasis has been something that's been really central in the work that i've done since i was a school principal for many years uh, and it's the work that I continue to try to do now. Well, I think, I mean, as you've been around enough educators, but uh, a lot of people say that, but when push comes to shove, it's, you kind of get get uncomfortable. I really do care about you, but we got to get results, right? I yeah. feel like you've lived it, which is why we're talking today. Um, what are some ways that you've either systematized, like when I, when I hear you say that, I'm like, wow, connection and care. Um how can I systematize that in my building? Like what is there certain measurements that you guys are looking at? So as we're trending towards those reading scores, we're also making sure we got our eye on the ball of the connection and care. Yeah. You know, the number one thing for me in the position I'm in now, Dustin, is in the human capital uh, uh, space, which is uh, we have to make sure that we are hiring people who have this same idea and approach to the way they do their job. Yep. So when I look at the 10 principles, for example, in my building, um, and those of, these are folks that I've been working with from, you know, the entire decade that I've been here, some of them, and then hiring new ones as we come along, uh, and along with assistant principals, very carefully selecting the people who are leading our schools, who have that common philosophy and approach and that disposition is really the most important job I have. Yeah. Uh, we don't ever see, hardly ever, a highly effective school without a highly effective principal. And when we look at the leaders we're hiring from a district perspective, that careful consideration to 
do they hold that same value that relationships are the engine and care and concern and connection is are, those things are the glue that hold this thing together um, and man nothing could have been more important in the last year and a half as we have faced some of the most difficult things we have faced in in the, at least for the 30 years I've been doing this um, so really choosing the right people to be in these really important leadership positions is really the role that I'm in now. Um, but I think it really also comes down to clarity of expectations and values. Um, if you are not a person who values care, connection, concern for children, right? For, for, for the children of the folks that entrust us every day when they send their kids to us, um, then you're not, those values need to be aligned and then um, and those are the people we seek out and hire and then we provide you right and and then we focus on the skills right and the processes and the systems with regard to we know the things that raise achievement um but it has to begin i think with a human connection and a relationship or we'll just never i think that's true from a teacher to a student and i think that's true all the way up the organization if we want people to do their best work so school and I think now district leadership has always been something, or at least in recent memory in terms of following your career, something that you've been really passionate about. Uh, which point did you really understand? Like, if we don't have a great school leader, this school, even if we have a, a superstar teachers, that's always going to be limited. When did you become a passionate advocate for school leadership in particular? Yeah, you know, um, you know, when I was a school principal, I did obviously a lot of work around what makes a really effective school. Um, and then the higher, the higher you go, what you really know and can see is that the principal is the linchpin for an effective school. Yep. Uh, and so we know that you could, the, the most important connection, the most important person is the teacher to a child within the school building. But when it comes to the effectiveness of the system, so that you're not having pockets of excellence in a school in schools uh it's the principal and it's the people who support that principle so you know as a school principal i was really passionate about what do the best principals do um that was something that started on my leadership journey early uh did a lot of research about that um i actually focused my doctoral work on what do superintendents do to help make principals more effective. Um, I really, I, I know that um, if we don't have highly effective principals in every school, we will not leverage what needs to be done for kids. So I think it's just over the last, you know, 15, 20 years or so, for as long as I've been a site administrator and now a superintendent, um, I, I know that's true, which is why the hiring of principals and assistant principals is something that I am very involved in and up close to. Uh, and then the work that I do with our school principals is actually some of the best work that my favorite part of the job. <laughs> well, so I, I don't want you to feel like you have to give away all your secrets, but my two thoughts are, what are some best practices you have for helping make sure you guys because it, it's all hiring is always a bet right my wife led uh she's a director of talent for her district for a number of years and like 
you're just you're making a strategic bet as best as possible. So you're trying to mitigate the risk as best possible. So what what's the what are some best practices you have on the front end uh, in order to identify the talent? And what are some best practices you have on the back end in terms of developing your talent? Yeah. So on the front end, I would say one of the things that we've done here in our district is we have prioritized in our budget uh, having assistant principals in every one of our schools. And that's for a few reasons. You know, when you look at a highly effective school, it takes it takes highly effective adults to help lead it. Uh, principals on their own, without a support structure in place at a school, we I think often overexpect what a principal can actually do. So part of it is, you know, we we hire assistant principals to support those class to support. We hire assistant principals to support principals, um, and then in turn things like counselors and teachers on special assignment who serve as instructional coaches in our schools so that the principal has a leadership team of people in addition to the teacher leaders that they work with, which are incredibly important in the school setting. Uh, but they have a team of people that they work with combined with a philosophy that the district office, we're here for the principals not the other way around. That's been a culture we've been working on for quite some time. My folks, my incredible district office team, we have a, a solid belief that we know the district office works for the schools as opposed to principals who, I remember the day of where you were jumping through hoops because you didn't quite get the work order right because you needed somebody to fix something that was broken. Um, that's the opposite here. So the system understands that the system works for the school site. Um, so assistant principals also serve as a bench for who you want to hire as a principal, that they have the opportunity to work alongside a highly effective principal. And then in turn, then what we're doing is preparing our assistant principals to assume those leadership roles, whether it's here or somewhere else. Uh, we know that we need great leaders for kids everywhere. So we do a lot of support with our assistant principal academy. Uh, we include our assistant principals in much of our work that are the meetings we have and the collaboration we do and the input we receive. We include assistant principals in those conversations. They are such a highly valued leader in our district, but it's allowing us to help tee up, right? The next group of folks who are going to be principals. So that's one probably piece of it, Dustin. I think um, the post after they're hired and selecting the right ones um, is really about the support that we provide for them uh, within the system. And that's, you know, directors and assistant superintendents and a system that understands that we're gonna do whatever it takes to ensure that the principals have what they need to do their jobs well. Yeah, I, so one of the things that we've talked about is, you know, your passion and your, it seems like your life's work at this point for creating a district and creating schools that are about staff and student empowerment, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing it sounds like we hire a principal and create support systems around them and make sure we're hiring those same people that have a mindset of empowerment, right? Yeah. Uh, what else, if anything, do your schools do 
Because I think what, what, what I think some people don't understand is that like we can all talk about student empowerment, but I feel like your district has been nationally recognized in a number of different ways for how great you guys are actually empowering people. So what is it that you're doing on the day-to-day level in the schools that's empowering people? Yeah, well, let's like maybe t- get to talk about the kids for a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, we use the seven habits of highly effective people with our kids beginning in TK. Wow. And um, and using the structures of the leader in me, uh, that has been an absolute game changer for us for the last seven years. Uh, we believe very um, wholeheartedly that children have the skills and abilities to be leaders from the time they're very young, leaders in their own life, in their family, in their school. So we have... Um, been working on the seven habits, teaching children these highly effective practices and disciplines and ways of being and thinking about the world uh, from a very early age. And, And so because that is just ubiquitous in the culture now, children are empowered to lead uh, they're empowered to think about their own academic progress and the goals that they set for themselves. They are empowered to be a part of leadership teams in the school where they help create the culture that they want to have, where they see potential problems and issues that they want to solve, whether it's in their school or in their communities. Um, And that's the environment that when you think about it, just from a layered perspective, you know, we have our folks, our adults classified and certificated staff who know and understand these principles themselves. And then in turn, how do we bring those ideas to life in the classroom for kids? Um, so, and it's, it's, it's really empowering kids with the knowledge and the belief that they really, there's big problems in this world that they wanna solve. And so we talk to them in that way, not what do you wanna be when you grow up, but what problems do you wanna solve? What are things that you're really passionate about? We pay attention and we do strengths-based assessments with all of our kids to find out what they're really good at and so that they can see those things uh, in themselves. And then they have the opportunity to apply those strengths and interests to the problems that they want to solve. All the while, we're trying to develop their leadership skills. Uh, And it's, it's a pretty powerful thing when kids take over the place uh, and they're empowered to do it. I think children and young people can do so much more than we we give them credit for. But when you create the space and you show and teach kids and model those behaviors yourself for them, it's uh, it's very powerful when you watch kids start to really see that they really have the power to do incredible things. Uh, in their life. Was it father of a second grade boy, a kindergarten boy and a one-year-old boy? uh, I'm thinking, how do I talk to my bride tonight about uh, moving out that way and having (laughs) your district? Because, you know, we start the, one of the reasons that we start this podcast with the same question every time is who are you and what do you love about what you do is we don't want you or anybody else to be defined by the job you have, right? It's the, the heart you have. It's the passion you have. It's what you enjoy that yeah. defines you and your impact. And I really like your framing of what problems are we trying to solve? Because um, I think about when you said it, I go right to my, my uh, son. 
whenever he sees exhaust right now, because his science teacher last year taught him something about pollution, right? And so he takes it to the extreme as most young kids do. And he's like, if he sees exhaust, he just assumes that's really bad. And it's all got to go. And so that's, that's a problem that he gets passionate about. And like, because there's a problem, he will dive more into the solution and studying as opposed to just studying for studying's sake. So have you noticed that with your kids because of that? Can you repeat that last part, Dustin? I was just listening to what you were saying. Just that last part of the question. Can you just say that one more time? So instead of just saying, this is science study, it's part of what you're supposed to do. It is, Luke, my son, you have, like, there's pollution in the world. Is that a problem? Yes, I'm so passionate about it that I want to learn about it so I can be an agent for change. With that mindset you're taking to your schools, have you noticed like an uptick of kids really diving into their subject matters? This Now I understand. It's a great question. Of course. So I love that you asked this. One of the things that was so important to us when we, our schools closed uh, for the pandemic, at, you know, this is our third school year yep. in dealing with this. Um, we were, the first thing we asked ourselves as a team was, what are we going to do? to keep our kids connected to school because we knew that every day that they were at home, like what's gonna get kids to open up their laptop and stick with us? You know, engagement has always been a really, you know, what we're all working at. How do we keep kids engaged in school? Uh, but this became exponentially important when we have had kids, when kids were at home and they were coming to us through their laptops. So one of the things that we really paid attention to is exactly what you're describing, which is a, what a, one of the initiatives that we really were working on here is creating more authentic kind of project-based approaches to teaching content for kids. So as you just mentioned with your son, it's this science standard or it's here's this problem with pollution and then let's look at who are folks in the real world who actually solve these kinds of problems and then how can we teach the science content around a driver of something that kids are really passionate about in addition to tied to potential careers that they might think about when they're older? Mm -hmm. That is, you know, we've been working on this now for a number of years. It was even more important during the pandemic. How do we keep kids connected to the content that we're teaching how do we keep them connected to their classmates? That personal connection when we know that was just among the most challenging pieces of what we've dealt with was the, the, was the isolation and disconnection for kids. And then, um, and then how, does, how, do, how does that thinking translate now into this year that the kids are back? So this is something that we're really passionate about is creating a space for kids to work on authentic real world problems that they actually really care about yep. and um and how are we supporting our teachers in creating those kinds of learning experiences because that's that's new for a lot of folks so um we have two dedicated teachers on special assignment who are working with our teachers to help really work on these kinds of experiences for the kids as drivers for engagement you know when kids are connected to things they care about they like when they're connected to their classmates 
when when they are then on lastly what i mentioned earlier when they're connected to the adults at school when these things are all at play together you just see kids who can't wait to get to school as opposed to filling out that worksheet or that you know whatever you know thing they had to do for homework that was you know meaningless um so the opportunity for children to engage in meaningful relevant content things they care about that has sometimes the opportunity to be aligned to their interests and passion um all the while we're teaching really important content skills knowledge you know things that kids have to know Yep. being solid writers and readers and mathematicians um, this is a uh, this is an approach that we're really passionate about and we're working to get better and better at it with our kids so as you mentioned we're in the middle of our third year of a pandemic and there are parts of the country right now that are back in full school and things seem to go well some of them try to start back full school and now we're back in virtual others may not be starting it's all over the, the map I believe in your state, your district was one of the first folks last year, right? That brought everyone back for five days a week. And that's true. I'm just curious, what role did student empowerment play um, mm -hmm. in making that happen or staff empowerment or whatever? Yeah. What's the secret of getting there? Yeah, um, we were. So we shut down along with everybody else, in, you know, in, in the, the March of the year before, uh, we started out the school year in, you know, we were virtual, then moved to hybrid, but we knew we needed to get our kids back to school. Um, so I would say as far as empowerment goes, you know, there was no way that that would have happened without the phenomenal work of our staff, uh, our, our leaders, our principals, um, but our classified support staff our teachers, uh, there, what had to happen to pull this off was significant. Yeah. And the ways that people had to work in a very interdependent way, right? When your facilities and your, the filters and the cleaning is has to be work right alongside what, how are we serving kids meals and where are families picking up food, which is serving right alongside, how are we having kids distanced in the classroom, which is served, which is right alongside the human resources department, who is having to hire significant numbers of people in order to have the appropriate staff to do all of these things. Um, I would say, including everyone's voice in that conversation, the expertise of the people who are up close to every one of those jobs we had kind of cross department planning teams that had each had a team leader so that we were considering and thinking through and getting the best thinking from all of our employees about what we would need to do. Teacher teams of people coming together to say, okay, what has to happen now while we're in a hybrid? How am I gonna teach these kids at home or these kids at school while I'm working with these kids at home? Teacher leader contributions and constant listening to our teachers about what they needed, the resources they needed. Um, and then our classified staff, our maintenance and operations department, the child nutrition department, transportation, special education. It's, it, was, it is such a complex job that we're asking school systems to do right now. I 
I just know in all the years that I have done this, I, I have never seen uh, the kind of amazing work, um, interdependent work and commitment that I've seen around doing what we need to do or what's in the best interest of our students. That, that's really the culture of our school district. Um, you know, we, I think that this emergency has really shined a light on um, highly effective systems, had the opportunity to really come together and, and make some hard decisions, but do some really great work and, and to collaborate in a way that allowed us to get our schools open um, and places that, you know, where there's a lot of tension and people are at odds with each other, I think are having a harder time. So I'm really, really proud of the work that we've done and we're open again, full time, full day. Wow. And we're doing, people have never worked this hard. I, I have just, and that's a really important thing for us to acknowledge and remember right now as leaders is that some of this Dustin is unsustainable yep. in what school districts, if we're just going to be real about it, yep. some of this is unsustainable unless we acknowledge and support the people who are doing this work every day in our schools. Have you guys uh, experienced um, in the midst of this work, because I mean, it is the hardest any any folks have had to work uh, for educators right now is, have you experienced uh, uh, retention issues where a number of teachers are reti early retirements or anything? Or is that, have you been fortunate enough to not hit your district like it's hit all across the country? Yeah, we've had a handful of folks who have said, yeah, it's time for me to retire. This is a, this is really significant. And there, you know, people who may have been considering retiring already. Um, what I would say actually is for us is, is, you know, there's a teacher shortage um, across the country right now, hiring of substitute teachers and, um, you know, the support staff that you need, bus drivers, folks that work in our child nutrition department, you know, staffing is, is our number one concern to make sure that we have qualified, highly qualified adults that are working with our kids. I think this is something that educational, uh, that districts across the system are really challenged by. And what's interesting is if you go back full circle to what we were talking about earlier, one of the things that I'm most proud of here is that the system is because we are so committed to care, concern, and connection for our employees, um, we, what I've seen here is, you know, that as a foundation of the way that we think about our work is, is helping us to stay in it together and, um, and people's willingness to just do whatever it takes to make sure that our schools are a safe place for children and for our staff members to be, uh, because we're not out of the woods yet. You know, we need to we need to be as vigilant as we were before about making sure that our schools and our working environments are safe for people to work in. So um, hiring and having enough staff for sure. Uh, that's I think that's a that's a challenge everywhere. But I'm really proud of how um, our folks are sticking with it. <laughs> that's awesome. Well. 
you have a significant leadership role within the uh, Superintendent Association uh, for the U.S. And I, I find it interesting that you're, you know, you're very honest about the challenges, but you're playing a role to recruit future leaders of organizations. So knowing how hard this work, how are you able to first describe what your role is, right? Because you're your co-founder of the Aspiring Superintendents Academy for female leaders. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and what you're doing to uh, recruit and help develop uh, female leaders to come in at a time that's really, really tough work. Not that it's never been, it's, it's always been tough, but now it just yeah. seems exceptionally tough. Yeah. Oh man. It's so true. Like who, who wants to jump on this moving train? Right. <laughs> um, I know, you know, um, what I'm, I, I, the work that we're doing with the female leaders across the country is so inspiring. Um, I co-lead this um, aspiring superintendents academy with my dear colleague and friend, Dr. Suzette Lovely. Uh, you know, AASA has been just a, has played a pivotal role in supporting aspiring superintendents for many years. Uh, we have um, several different types of academies that uh, happen across the country. Uh, the, but AASA's role in professional development for the superintendent, as well as people who aspire to the superintendency, um, they've been a real active and, and a real leader there. So it came a point where we uh, just said, you know, we don't see, you know, what's happening, what, what's happening for women. And knowing that, you know, between 25, you know, depending on the year, but a, approximately 22 to 25, 26% of the superintendents in our country are women. And, and so we know that we have to pay careful attention to helping women see themselves potentially in the role as a superintendent, but also learning about the path to the superintendency. It doesn't look the same for everyone. Yep. Um, and helping create a network of women who have an interest or a passion in um, providing this kind of leadership in their communities. So we are getting ready to start our third cohort. We're finishing our second cohort right now. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna to get to be together in person for the first time. We have 44 women from 23 states who we've been working with remotely all year this year. Uh, and we're gonna to get to see each other for the first time. And it's really an opportunity for women to uh, come together. The network is really important, but the professional learning the faculty that we have brought together in this particular academy are all successful, highly successful female superintendents from across the country. Mm. And, uh, and we give them opportunity for learning from, from gals who are doing this work. Um, and also mentoring is a big part of that. They have small group mentors where they work with successful superintendents. Um, and it's, it, it is a collaborative network of women who all have a real passion about wanting to serve in this way uh, and how we help women develop in their skills, but also in their confidence that they can do the job. Yeah, I, I, I need to understand more about this. And this, you know, as a you know, male, this might sound like a ridiculous question to you, but, you know, my, my mom is the CEO of United Way back in our area where I grew up. My stepmom is the vice president of a bank. My wife is the chief of staff for her school district. Like I've always been around really strong, empowered women. And I, this, this conversation takes me back to my wife's, one of her closest friends in the world. When she was a teacher getting ready to become a principal, 
you know, I, I was at, you know, my district school of innovation. I'm like, I would hire you tomorrow <laughs> for your skill set. And she would tell me, you know, I'm just not ready yet. And I'm like, I know the people who think they're ready. I need you. <laughs> what is it that is holding some super talented women back from jumping or leaping at the chance uh, to be a leader? I'm curious if that's something that you've seen or is that just a one-off case? Oh, no, it's <laughs> it's definitely not a one-off case. But I do think that there's lots of, there's lots of factors. What yeah. you're describing, I think sometimes, well, maybe I can share several ideas here. One is that, you know, for girls growing up, you often can't be what you can't see. Mm. And if you haven't had the opportunity as a young, as a girl growing up and as a young woman to see women in the roles that you've described of your wife and your mom and, you know, your friends, that is, that's, that's a big deal. Um, we have a lot of, a lot of women share with us that they just did not have female role models, right? at higher and higher levels. So I think that's one thing. And it's one of the reasons why I think we have to be paying a lot of attention to what we're doing with girls in our schools. It's one of the reasons why the Leader in Me program is so important to me here is because I want girls to see themselves as leaders from a very early part of their life. Yep. Um, so that's so that's one. Um, I do think that, you know, in education, we can look at the, for example, in the elementary level, we have over 70% of the people who work in elementary schools are female. But by the time you get up to the higher levels, you get down below 30% are women. Um, and that has, that has to do, I think, for a lot of reasons, the gender bias that people believe about whether or not women can actually do the job. Yep. Um, we have, there is gender bias about men in the top position is alive and well in many organizations. I think the other place where that lives often is in school boards. Remember, school boards are the ones that hire the superintendent. Yep. So if there are biases that live there about whether or not a woman could be able, would be able to do the job, that's another thing that we're up against. And this is even more important for women of color. Uh, who's, who the obstacles and the barriers that women of color face are even more significant. So these kinds of opportunities for that we're creating in AASA where women can come together to build that confidence. You know, when you look at the research about why women don't often aspire to higher levels of leadership is they don't believe they can do the job. Uh, the lack of confidence is often cited as a reason why. So it's important that in our organizations, even in school districts, whether you're a male or a female superintendent, that we're giving opportunities for women within our organizations to grow and develop and take on higher level levels of leadership, where we're tapping women on the shoulder and we're saying, hey, you'd be awesome at this. And maybe women who never even thought that they would be, right? kind of like what you said to your I think you said it was a friend of yours it said oh my gosh I would hire you right now absolutely um it has often to do with what that people don't see that they um that they might have the skill set for that yep. uh sometimes women really believe that they have to be perfect at everything before they could aspire to the next thing yep. and we know that that's not true well that's how she felt right she would say yep I've not mastered these three things and I I basically uh, I forget the book, this would really help right now, but there is a book that kind of described the challenge, right? There, there would be, 
uh, you know, I'm not trying to get into race or uh, anything else, but like, you know, say a, a white male like myself would look at uh, a job description and there, let's say there's 10 bullet points that you sent, uh, Candy, and uh, I see I'm qualified for three of the 10 and I'm thinking I am a perfect fit for this job I'm applying. Whereas uh, this amazing woman in this case would have seven of the 10 qualifications and she would see the three that she's not and she would not apply like that. That to me is what was what I was living with. And that's what I think you're fighting against. And I encourage you to continue to fight because there's so many talented leaders out there that are not jumping on uh, the bus and we need them desperately. Boy, oh boy, you're so right. And I would say that if you are a leader of a school district or a school, to really be thinking this through because this begins when when girls girls and young women when they're young mm. this begins early that we are empowering girls to be in leadership roles right uh, yep. and so it begins it begins early um, one of the books that describes what you're talking about Dustin is a book that we use in the cohort that some of your uh, listeners may appreciate women who are thinking about some of these issues is how women rise <laughs> how women rise by sally helgelson and she wrote this book with marshall goldsmith um who also if you, many of you might be familiar with his book with what got you here won't get you there yep. um they looked at those same issues that as you're rising through um into different varying leadership roles what are the unique characteristics of what happens to women uh as they're rising uh, to higher and higher levels of leadership. So that's really a fun book that we spend some time with um, in our academy uh, I, that I've you know, shared with the female leaders in my organization uh, because there's some things that we do that get in our own way. And then there's some things that happen that are structural, right? The gendered and racial bias that exists is real. Um, but there's also some things that we do that we get in our own way. And what you're describing is one of them. It's, you know, kind of thinking I have to, I have to be an expert at everything before I want to move forward to consider I might, maybe I'm ready for this next, this next position uh, that might come up. When you're identifying, and this is a quick question before we have a last few quick rapid fire questions, when you're identifying uh, leaders that just may be teachers in a district or principals who you think could be a soup one day, what are a couple of the skill sets that you're looking for to just, again, I'm sure there's things that you know you could teach them and they'll learn on the job, but things that you can't teach, what are those intangibles you're trying to identify in future mm -hmm. leaders? You know, I, I would say, you know, when you think about classroom teachers or even principals, people who have kind of a systems approach to the way they think about doing their job, right? I think is important. Um, when you think about um, the heart of a person, I think that's important. You know, people who are very similar to what you were describing before, I really believe that this work is relational. Uh, I think that we're gonna really make the kind of progress we need to make with kids by with, use, at, with relationships at the center of what we do. Um, I would say people who uh, really know how to make personal connection with others uh, and, and, and really people who, particularly when I think about the female principles that I have now, um, people who understand the, bear, the, the complexity and the dynamics that come into creating a highly successful school, yep. uh, I think just those are just a handful of some of the things I would say. 
That's great. Well, I'm going to wrap up in a minute with uh, kind of your advice for folks moving forward. But before we do, I just have a couple quick get to know you questions. And so one of the things that we noticed this year is that all right, we've noticed for a while, but we want to dive in with all of our guests this year is just a few questions that kind of, uh, I think, are unique to leaders. And so uh, what habits or disciplines that you do mm. have on a daily basis that you think make you a better leader? No, <laughs> Um, that's a great question. I would say one of the things that I've been working really hard on and I'm really paying attention to is limiting, um, limiting the input, mm. the things that are coming in that have the potential to bring a lot of negative energy into the work that I'm doing. So I, um, I'm really, I'm limiting, I limit my social media and I limit um, the nonstop news cycle that's constantly <laughs> spinning all the time. Um, those two things, you know, those were things I really had to pay attention to during the pandemic, uh, because as you pr like, it's probably true for many of us, you know, that news was grinding, right? All the time we wanted to be informed and really understand what was going on. And what I found was it was just this constant barrage of you know negative energy and and not to be not not that we can we need to be well informed right, right. but um, it was I, what I found was between the twenty four hour news cycle, the social media on top of the day in and day out kind of twelve hour a day sitting at my kitchen counter, um, trying to you know working on running our school district from my kitchen. Um, I, it got to be a pretty, a pretty challenging spot. So I really learned a lot from that. I, I, I limit some of those things now and it's very helpful to me. Um, but I'm also another one of those folks who being really organized helps me. You know, I spend a lot of time in being proactive, yep. right. And, um, you know, having things, you know, well-organized ahead so that I can be focused on the things that I need to do. I get up and I make my bed every morning and I, you know, I prep for the day, the night before I still do those kinds of things that help yeah. me. I feel that allow me to stay focused during the day. That's great. Um, what authors or what books are you reading lately or have you read in your career that have been some of those um, pivot points for you that really inspire you and have inspired you lately? Yeah, I love that question too. There's so many. Um, you know, I think the older I've gotten and after so many years of doing this job, the more that I've had the opportunity to work on my personal effectiveness, the better I feel like I'm doing in my work. And so some of that reading, I think um, I would just recommend just a few things that are just real important kind of game-changing books for me. Um, the Untethered Soul by Michael Singer um, is one. And more recently, one that I'm recommending to folks a lot is um, a book called um, Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. She's a researcher at the University of Texas um, on how we got to be kind to ourselves. <laughs> Right. And, in, in, you know, if you're a person who's, you know, a hard charging, you know, high achieving goal oriented person, we often can be really hard on ourselves. So that book on self-compassion, I think, has been a good one. Um, and I recently read 
I just recently read The Choice by Edith Egger, which was a really profound uh, book for me to read as well. So those are just a few, I think, of my, of the kind of the personal side of the house. Uh, right now, I'm working on a book with um, a couple of folks. It's actually a book that's well known in leadership circles. It's actually its original, the, the Leadership Challenge by Kuznis and Posner. Yep. Their new book called Everyday People, Extraordinary Leadership. You know, that's something I'm working with now uh, with all kinds of folks um, across, not just in the education sector. I'm doing some work around leading from the chair you're in, that you don't have to be the boss or the CEO to be a leader. I can tell you about kindergartners who are in our schools. And so if our kindergartners can lead from where they are, everybody can. So I'm working on some of that right now too. That's awesome. Well, last question before I give you the one, one thing I told you I wanted to hear from you today about is uh, what's, yeah, like, I don't know when you work out or when you're sitting around, I'm just curious for everybody right now, what's in your playlist? Do you have a playlist oh. <laughs> that you rock out to? Like what's, yeah. what are you listening to? And it's e-bikes too around my house. My husband and I are we ride our e-bikes around a lot. I'm really lucky to live in a part of the country where we can ride our e-bikes a lot. And we have a speaker. So we always have a playlist whenever we're riding our bikes. Um, I have super eclectic taste in music. Yep. Um, I love country music. So, you know, Brothers Osborne and Drake White are some of my favorites. Yep. Um, I grew up, my dad was a square dance caller when I was growing up. So I grew up as a square dancer and my, and, and so country music has always been a part of my life. Um, but I also Hold on, have... I got a question before you go down. Yeah, I'm in, I'm visualizing me riding down the same bike trail with you and you and your husband like, oh, never, 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 never. yeah, no, <laughs> it's not the square dancing part. It's just the fun country part. It yeah. might be like a like an old an old Dominion playlist. Maybe yeah, might okay. be what you might hear, right? <laughs> okay. um, but we also we really love I you know I love lo-fi music. Um, Thievery Corporation is at the top of our list regularly. Yeah. Uh, but we last weekend, I think David and I, my husband, I think we had even the Cars playlist on last time. So um, don't, I love I love Spotify and Pandora for that. You can mix it up. Yeah, Pandora. I mean, to your point, it's uh, I believe the reason why we asked the question is like music. You know, if you like music, it makes sense. If you don't, it doesn't. But like music can be just kind of your um, soundtrack to your life. So whatever your mood you're in, you find those groups, right? And I find Pandora to be the best of that. I'm like, I can't think of what I want to listen to, but I know I'm in this kind of mood, yeah. put that artist or song in and you find so many other new artists, which is awesome. So true. That, it's, that exact thing happened to us, Dustin, last weekend. Exact thing. We had a playlist on some something. I don't even remember what the playlist was now. Yep. And Lucas Nelson. Okay. Lucas Nelson is Billy Nelson's son. And I had never heard of, have you heard Lucas Nelson? I had never heard of him before. And that might sound silly to some of your listeners because he might be super Not famous. Um, but he, we discovered him because of a playlist and now we can't get enough of him. So good. Southern rock. So good. Yeah. I apologize to uh, Lucas Nelson, Nelson, if he's listening or any fans of his, uh, but I also have not experienced his music. So I will fix that today. So uh, good. Nobody's trying to offend him. So uh, Candace, this has been awesome. Uh, the last question I want to leave you with is, you know, again, your passion for leadership is, uh, exudes from you and you can just feel it every time you're around you. So what right now is the best piece of advice you have for leaders living and leading in these kind of turbulent times? Yeah. 
You know, I think if you have anyone who you're responsible for who's in your care right now as a leader and particularly in public schools, um, but I think this is true anywhere, um, we have to pay really careful attention to people's hearts yep. and that people are that people have the resources they need to do their job. Um, we have asked people to do more and more and more uh, to try to compensate for the things that are required right now, things that were never a part of our jobs before. And I think that we have to be really careful that it's just not sustainable. Uh, and so how are we really asking and supporting and giving people the tools, resources, time, love, and attention they need to do their jobs? Um, I think this is a really important thing that we have to keep asking because there is a breaking point for people. And we're, no, we're seeing that all, particularly in the medical profession, right? In, um, in, and in, the, in public education, we've got to really be paying attention to the hearts of the people that are in our care. Well, um, thank you for leading the way you do. Thank you for having the courage to lead in a way that seems very natural that people talk about, but um, and it may feel very natural to you, so it doesn't feel special. Um, but as someone who's spent a lot of time traveling the country looking at different leaders in the education world, I, unfortunately, your style of leadership seems all too unique. So I'm hoping that you're working mm -hmm. to continue to fix that across mm -hmm. the country. But um, this has been awesome. I, you know, we talked, I was like, you know, Candice, it'll be like 30 to 40 minutes. And then uh, you and I both knew this would happen in our pre-call. Yeah. We got lost. And um, I mean, I have, I mean, you can't see this, but I've got notes here of things I want to talk to my wife about, my friends about. Um, so this, this was awesome. I appreciate you bringing your, your head and heart to this conversation. I appreciate you being you. Thank you, Justin. What a pleasure. It's so fun and reaffirming to talk about the things we care about, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure our paths are going to cross again very soon. I hope so. Uh, hopefully in Florida in February, but that's a whole I other hope conversation. So. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> Thanks again. All right. I'll talk to you later. Have a All great right, day. Take care. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential. Mm -hmm.